Ladies and gentlemen, today I am standing up for Phryne. Now, Phryne is not the most famous person we're going to do in this series, but it is always the way I insist on including women, and that means finding people that we don't know anything about at all, because I find it a challenge. <laughs> so, uh, Phryne was a hetaira. Uh, we will translate that tactfully for Radio 4 as courtesan. Um, <laughs> And she lived in the fourth century. She was born around 370 BCE in Thespiae in Boeotia, so sort of central Greece, right? And her real name was not Phryne. It is a nickname. Uh, her real name was Minersarate, which means mindful of virtue or remembering virtue. Perhaps not the ideal name <laughs> for a high-class call girl, let's say. Um, but she swiftly takes up the name Phryne, the nickname Phryne, um, and she is so celebrated, so renowned uh, as an excellent hetaira, um, that it becomes a, a kind of go-to nickname for other courtesans and prostitutes and good-time girls in general. So much so that more than 300 years later, Horace will have a girlfriend who he calls Phryne in his poetry. That's how far it goes. And that's fair enough, right, because Phryne is a pretty name. It's a pretty name, P-H, uh, obviously not an F because they don't have one in Greek. It's a pretty name, and you hardly ever hear it today. There's Phryne Fisher in the Miss Fisher Mysteries, for those of you who also like niche Australian historical murder mysteries, <laughs> with lovely hats. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not just me. And so, you know, you do occasionally hear it, but you don't hear it very often, which is probably a good thing because it sounds pretty, but it is not that pretty because the word Phryne actually in Greek means toad. <laughs> Because here's the thing, apparently Phryne had quite sallow skin, yellowish skin, and this particular, I was gonna say brand of toad, that's not what I mean at all, like species of toad? Type of toad, let's go with, is also very yellowish. I mean, it doesn't sound like a very complimentary nickname, particularly when you realize that then all the other prostitutes pick it up and use it. I mean, that is quite surprising. It's like if every sex worker today went by the nickname Baron Silas Greenback. <laughs> Yes, let's do that. Why not? I, I, for one, would find that erotic. And by erotic, I mean off-putting. Um, Phryne was the model for one of the most famous statues in the ancient world, which sadly does not survive to today. What it does survive, though, are descriptions of it and copies of it, all of which, interestingly, are slightly different, almost as though people are trying to copy a statue without quite being able to focus on what they're supposed to be thinking about. I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> But it was a shocking statue because it's the statue of Aphrodite that was kept at Knidos. And Aphrodite in this statue, shockingly, is naked. I know, with a hand kind of covering her, but sort of mainly drawing attention to how naked she is. It was sculpted by the fourth century's most celebrated sculptor, a man named Praxiteles, who was Phryne's boyfriend. You have to presume that he was like, where could I possibly find a model for... Ooh, next to me in bed. That seems perfect. What could possibly go wrong? I'm not saying lazy. I'm just saying, as I say, the statue doesn't survive, but copies do, descriptions do, and three really good stories do, which I would like to share with you today. The Aphrodite of Knidos was sculpted at the same time by Praxiteles as another statue of Aphrodite. He made two. One who was very respectably clad, and one 
who was naked. And the people of Coz had first dibs because they'd paid up. And they said, oh, we should definitely have the respectable dressed one. Thank you very much. Shocking. Naked one over there. We don't want that. So they took the dressed version of Aphrodite. And we are told by Pliny the Elder that the people of Knidos, who therefore got the runners-up prize of naked Aphrodite, got a very much better deal because their one becomes a massive tourist attraction. <laughs> and people travel from all over Greece in order to see it up close. The second excellent story about the statue of Aphrodite at Knidos is in a book of Byzantine epigrams, which I know you know are my favorite bedtime reading. <laughs> what should we do tonight? Murder, she wrote, or Byzantine epigrams? <gasps> could there be time for both? That could. <laughs> epigrams are so short. And in the book of Byzantine epigrams, Aphrodite is imagined seeing the statue. And she turns to her companion and says, when did Praxiteles see me naked. That's how good the statue is, right? We're supposed to imagine that the goddess herself is like, well, he's definitely got to go. <laughs> he has totally had an eyeful of me in the buff. I like it. It's just such a cute story. The most magnificent story about this statue is the one which is hardest to tell on Radio 4. And that <laughs> is of a man who was so, shall we go with, impressed by the statue <laughs> that he spent the night locked in the temple precinct with it. And the following morning, traces of his, shall we go with enthusiasm, <laughs> were visible on the statue's leg. So humiliated was he by this that he hurled himself off a cliff and into the sea, proving that too much beauty, the beauty of a divine figure in Aphrodite and presumably the beauty of her model in Phryne could be a dangerous thing. Would you please welcome to the stage my guests, Professor Edith Hall and comedian Katie Brand. <laughs> Edith Hall, why Hello. was a naked statue so shocking? There are naked statues before the Aphrodite of Canidos, right? There are naked male statues for sure. I think it's the combination of upward lifted arms to raise the breasts and a general sense of cacottish, hey, I've just got out of the bath, which means I'm kind of clean. You know, that could be quite a come on. And, it can and, be quite a come on. I mean, if you if you set your bar quite low. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I guess, I mean, Praxiteles has to take some of the credit, presumably, for using her as a, as a no, model. Yeah, and that whole thing is really interesting. How far is beauty in, in classical art informed by realistic women who are being used as realistic models and how far is the way we are made to think about them being formed by the statues but the Greeks did have some weird fantasies about statues I mean there are a lot of stories about people men getting very frustrated and jumping on statues I basically think the idea of, of, of a woman who lies completely still and says nothing whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> is actually most blokes ultimate fantasy all right, then. <laughs> and do you think people really did travel? Pliny the Elder tells us that people travelled from all over Greece to see the Aphrodite of Knidos, did they? Well, there is absolutely no other reason to go to Knidos. <laughs> <laughs> 
so not all statues, however, provoked so much desire or indeed revealed so much desire. Statues are quite strange for the Greeks because there's a sense when it's the statue of a god that it's, it's both a representation in stone, but also that it sort of has a divine power itself, that the, the god kind of dwells inside that statue in a way. But that's not always true. We also have a story about Phryne snuggling up next to a philosopher, a man named Xenocrates, at dinner. And he is not interested in her, something which we are given to understand happens very rarely indeed. And thus she describes him as Andriantos. He is not a man, Andros. Uh, he is like a man. He's a statue of a man, presumably not because he was hard. Um, <laughs> the reason I chose Phryne was not because she was a celebrated beauty, although she was. It wasn't even because I could do a joke about Baron Greenback, although I'm not going to lie, that was kind of most of it. Um, <laughs> She was witty, and that's what I like about her, at least in part. She's celebrated, not least by a man named Athenaeus, who's writing in the third century CE, so 600 years after she would have died. And he commemorates her in the date no sophistae, dinner parties with philosophers, I suppose. And it's following on a noble tradition from uh, Plato's Symposium, where you record a night of clever people being witty and interesting and a bit drunk, and who knows what could happen. And women are at these parties, hetairai, like uh, Phryne is. And so what you get is this incredible kind of quick conversation, which he's celebrating because she was beautiful, but also because she was funny, and he is excited by that. So, I, I mean, this seems to me important that we celebrate at least one of her jokes. It's hard to translate a joke, so you're going to have to give me a little bit of latitude on this. But at one of these parties, for example, Athenaeus tells us that a slightly drunk man says to her, ah, oh, is it true that you are the Aphrodite of Praxiteles? Is it true that, that you are the inspiration for Praxiteles' sculpture of Aphrodite, uh, to gloss it out? Is it true that you're the Aphrodite of Praxiteles? She says, that's nothing. You're the Eros of Phidias. Now, that looks like a compliment. <laughs> because Phidias was a great sculptor in the 5th century, just as Praxiteles was in the 4th century. Aphrodite is the goddess of love. Eros is the god of love. So it looks like a compliment. I mean, I guess you could say she was calling him old, because 5th century to 4th century, and maybe there's an element of that in there. But there's also a pun, because Phidias is the name of the sculptor. Phido is the word for stinginess or thrift. <laughs> so he's saying, is it true you're this beautiful goddess? And she's saying, is it true you're really stingy? <laughs> Which is kind of snarky. I like that about her, and I think it is excellent. But mainly what I think is excellent is that she is celebrated for being funny in multiple instances in Athenaeus, but also by Lucian. Remember Lucian from series three? He has a whole book called Conversations with Courtesans. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like Walking with Dinosaurs, but isn't. It isn't like that. <laughs> and it is kind of amazing that these men, these respectable writer men, are celebrating women being funny. And it's amazing for me because I was once a full-time stand-up comedian. And from 2002 to 2006, I went up to the Edinburgh Fringe every single year and I did a show which was sell out for the run and I would lose like 5,000 pounds because that's the mystery of Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> And every single year, I would have to do interviews with perfectly nice journalists who I would like in real life where I probably have met them subsequently. And every single year, somebody would ask me, without any hesitation, do you think it's true that women can't be funny? <laughs> like, women aren't the same thing as people. <laughs> but like some weird, exotic species, like maybe the elk. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, I'm pretty sure women can be funny because that's how I pay my bills and you're sort of denying my existence and if you say it often enough I feel a bit like you've told me that my eyes aren't brown for people at home they are and it just got a bit weird that people would ever ask such a thing and in 2007 I, I, an otherwise relatively clever man Christopher Hitchens wrote a piece for Vanity Fair 
titled, Why Women Aren't Funny. Not even a question, a statement. And just reading it again, as I was thinking about this show, it made me feel sick with fury that he's dead and I can't rebut it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it is not enough for me that he was wrong and that I'm still alive, so I've won. I'm still... <laughs> genuinely angry and hurt that his argument is basically women I'm attracted to can't be funny and women who are funny can't be attractive to me because here's the thing I used to go to work I don't know four or five nights a week without ever giving any thought to whether or not Christopher Hitchens would want to get into my pants for the excellent reason that that wasn't my job <laughs> And so, do you know what? I wouldn't still be cross about this if it weren't for the... I'm st I am genuine. I've been waiting 11 <laughs> years to be angry about this. You're just going to have to sit and listen. <laughs> I wouldn't still be cross about this if it weren't for the case that on the day of recording, the Writers Guild of Great Britain revealed that 11%, count them, it's not the same as half, of women writing comedy in Britain on television, 11% of them are women. 11% of people aren't women. 50% of people are women, and that includes within this building that we are currently standing in. I could not be crosser about this. These words cast a long shadow no matter how dead he is. So, <laughs> I am not in a forgiving mood. Katie Brand. Hi. <laughs> you have... The Phryne of the 21st century. Precisely. <laughs> you, as I, have been on the receiving end of the can women be funny argument mm. without anyone thinking that it might be a little bit rude to ask you, mm -hmm. given that you're funny for a living. Mm -hmm. Well, there was always a kind of way the male journalists would frame it and you knew it was coming, where they go, right, little question for you. Maybe... <laughs> might be a bit controversial, but I just said, uh, and you go, okay, I know what you're going to say now. You're going to ask me if women are funny. Now they come out with all sort of nonsense, like saying, oh, it's just the readers that want to know. <laughs> That's why we as journalists, noble journalists, have to ask. It's an ethical matter. And I did actually once say to a lady, if you say that to me one more time, I'm going to throw you out the window. Difficult uh, Katie yeah, Brown. I know, yes. <laughs> and so I want to be difficult. I want to be a difficult woman again, but not like Theresa May. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think one of the funniest responses I've seen recently is by a brilliant comedian called Roisin Connerty where the interviewer said, so, by the way, the question, are women funny, has sort of politely transformed into what's it like being a woman in comedy, right? <laughs> uh, which is just a polite way of saying, are women funny? So she gets the question, what's it like being a woman in comedy? To which she responds, a bit like chicken. <laughs> right? <laughs> Baffled silence. <laughs> then Jellicy said, chicken? She said, yeah, like, what, like Nando? She says, yeah. He goes, what do you mean, like chicken? She says, just meaty. Just a bit meaty. Uh, and then refuses to be drawn any further <laughs> on the matter. So that now, I'm going to reach for surrealism, I think, now. Yeah, why not? Uh, whenever I'm asked this question, because it is a completely absurd question. It's a defunct question. It's a nonsensical question. The problem is, is that I think humour is the ultimate sign of being a human. Mm. It's one of the most sophisticated signals that you can give off as a human, is to be funny and find something funny. And I think if you objectify women because you want to sleep with women who are statues and silent, or just beautiful queens who say nothing and never challenge you and just say you're a genius, uh, and then shut up when your friends come round, if that's the sort of woman you want, what you're really looking for is an object. And you can't objectify women. You can't just have a woman who's a body and who is just about the distribution of sex for your pleasure if that woman suddenly starts acting like a human. It's inconvenient. Uh, and one of the main ways we act like a human is by being funny. And so it's a big problem for someone like Christopher Hitchens because as soon as a woman is funny, they're no longer an object and then he can't objectify them and that means he can't dismiss them. 
And that's why it's one of the most misogynistic things I've ever read, and it still disgusts me. Do you know what really bothers me is that after a while, you started to kind of look in the mirror and think, maybe I don't exist. Maybe I don't exist because the thing I apparently think I do is in question. Or sometimes it's just being denied. And yet I bought my flat by being funny, which makes me, I might add, a lot less successful than Phryne. <laughs> Although to be fair, I am selling quite a lot less than Phryne. So there is that, but she was absolutely minted. Just to give you an idea, in 336 BCE, the walls of Thebes are raised by Alexander. Alexander the Great, as we would now call him. I imagine the people of Thebes felt slightly differently about him. <laughs> Alexander the not very great, thanks for asking, is probably how they referred to him, I would think. And Phryne offered to pay to have the walls rebuilt. That is how rich she was on the condition that they put up an inscription which read that the walls had been destroyed by Alexander and rebuilt by Phryne, the courtesan. <laughs> she is not ashamed of her job, and nor should she be. But how great is that? She wants it right there in the description of who she is. That is where it belongs. And what's really interesting about it, from a purely linguistic point, is that would make that inscription technically pornography, which of course means literally writing about prostitutes. Um, <laughs> She is, like so many other notorious characters of the 4th and 5th centuries BCE, she is on the receiving end of a lawsuit. And it is a capital charge. She's on trial for her life. We don't know what the charge is, infuriatingly, but chances are it could well have been impiety. It's what Socrates is prosecuted for. It's what lots of people get prosecuted for. Asabea is the Greek word, impiety. And perhaps the impiety, were it to have been impiety, was that she had modelled for a goddess, for Aphrodite. There is certainly a track record of sculptors being prosecuted for putting regular human people into sculpture because Phidias, remember Phidias from her joke? He was prosecuted for putting himself and his friend Pericles, the great Athenian statesman, into the Parthenon frieze, which you could go and try and track them down, I suppose, at the British Museum and see if you can find which their faces might have been. But he was prosecuted for it. That's how shocking and difficult it was. So perhaps she was prosecuted for that. All we know is that her trial did not go well. She had what might be described as a bit of a duff lawyer, a man named Hyperides. And he tries to defend her, but doesn't do a very good job and realizes when the jury is about to go and vote that he may have slightly screwed things up. And so we are told by later writers, for example, Athenaeus, that he tore open her tunic so that the jury would see her naked at which point they would be so dazzled by her great beauty, they would not be able to convict her. I mean, it's a, it's a Hail Mary pass, isn't it? I think. <laughs> As these things go, it's like, it might have been better to come up with a good argument, mate, but if, if all else fails, just stripping, I suppose. I mean, you could give it a go. I, I'm not saying I necessarily expect it to be happening in courts near us, but unfortunately, it's almost certainly made up by Athenaeus or made up by a later writer anyway. The earliest source we have for Phryne's trial is a comic playwright called Posidipus of Cassandrea, I think, somewhere really unlikely. And he's only writing a few decades after the trial. He talks about the trial. He does not mention the nudity. You are simply going to have to take my word for it when I tell you no comedian would miss that out. <laughs> So I think what happens is that uh, over time, these men who are sitting there going, oh, I should just write a bit more about how incredibly witty Phryne was. Mm, and then maybe she got naked. I think it probably all just went a little bit in that direction. You may be unsurprised to hear it's a very popular story with visual artists because naked ladies, our favorite thing, but also historical, it's culture and history. <laughs> Phryne as a byword for these posh educated mm. men to acknowledge themselves to each other. Mm. 
I saw a picture of her today, which I haven't seen before, because you showed it to me. I wondered if you might talk about it, because it's really interesting for one very good reason, which is that she isn't facing us. Yes, this is a, a, an extraordinary late 19th century picture of 12 famous women of antiquity, which includes Cleopatra and Cornelia, the mother of the Gracchi and Bodicea and all sorts. But the only woman with her back turned to us, rather flirtatiously, it's true, is actually Phryne. So the whole image is, in fact, meant to ask you in your mind to make her turn around and, and drop her robes. It is actually soft form of the mind for the late Victorian bloke. The other problem with this picture is that all these women, who include, you know, several North Africans, <laughs> is that they are so white, it's not true. And most of them are platinum blonde, and it's a, a sort of fantastic... Well, like in Aeneid 4, where Dido has blonde hair. Yeah, late and 19th. Go, Does she? Century. Are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quick question, Virgil. It's the Queen of Tunis, exactly. It's a very problematic image in general. But my real issue is that frune, frune, frunichos, if you look at all the use of, the, of that word in, in the ancient Greek lexicon... This particular word, actually, the way ancient Greek colour words work, is that it's not so much that she was dark or olive green like a toad, but that she had glossy skin. So shiny, because they're shiny, obsessed with sparkly glossy things. like yeah. a toad. So it's actually far more like you've used one of those deep moisturisers they use, you know, at, at, in Hollywood and stuff. So you're thoroughly glossy looking and your skin looks absolutely gorgeous. Like an otter. Um... <laughs> Otters, <laughs> like a lovely damp otter. <laughs> okay. Your go-to erotic image. I, I, I have no personal experience of how glossy otters are. <laughs> I'm glad you do. I do. I go to the zoo quite often. Okay. But she's got glossy skin. She's got that wonderful sheer... And, and that's the problem with ancient Greek words about colour, is that they haven't divorced, as we have in the colour palette that you go to the art shop for, the actual textures that produce them. So when you say that, say, Hector's got ebony black hair, mm. you're not actually talking so much about the shade as that the texture and shine is like ebony. Solid, polished like energy. Yeah. yeah. So when she's called... And wine dark sea is because it's the glistening... Exactly. The sun and actually the surface tension mm. is with wine dark sea. So with Freinitz, it's, it's, it, it, it really is that she's got this glossy, reflective, beautiful skin that totally doesn't quite get. Phryne has been historically popular with all kinds of creative people, with comedians, with Posidippus, uh, with writers, as we discussed, Athenaeus, with Lucian, uh, with sculptors, Praxiteles, with painters, uh, Turner, amongst other people, painted her, with poets through the ages. Uh, she has been in a poem by Rilke, the Austrian poet. I don't do German because I did Greek, which has been entirely the more useful choice until this moment. Um, <laughs> and to be fair, there was a couple of times I gigged in Berlin when it was a bit awkward. Um, <laughs> Rilke, the Austrian poet, has a poem called Die Flamingos, which I presume one can translate as The Flamingos. Um, like I say, I'm not fluent in German, but I'm giving it a stab, in which he compares flamingos and their exotic beauty to Phryne. You know, I mean, you can see that. Flamingos are quite exotic, aren't they? Like herons dressed up for an 80s night. So... <laughs> I say, why not? Yeah, why not? Um, although, uh, alas, a German-speaking friend of mine told me that maybe they just used the name Phryne because it rhymes with griny, which is a, 
a sort of poetic German word for a meadow or greenery or something, where, where a flamingo might be, anywhere. Oh, really? <laughs> Slightly broken the spell. He is not the only poet who's obsessed with Phryne. Uh, Baudelaire, Charles Baudelaire, writes a poem, of course, in French about Lesbos, in which multiple Phrynes, he imagines, are to be found, shall we go with pledging themselves to one another? <laughs> he says, and what is really interesting about this poem is that when you get translations of it, as, as we go through time, they start to miss out her name because people aren't going to get the reference, I guess, as classics becomes less ubiquitous and, and people's education says they assume people aren't going to get it. But it's interesting, I think, that Phryne for a long time is like a code word, a shibboleth, by which educated men tell other educated men how educated they are. I'm so educated that my reference for beauty isn't Helen of Troy. Everyone knows about her. I'm not even going to call her Helen of Sparta and look like I've read the bit before that bit. <laughs> it's like, that's too obvious. We're going to go for Phryne. No one knows her. That makes me look really educated. And then as time goes on, people just don't get the reference. So she becomes replaced with a, a generic term like courtesan or sometimes with an inaccurate generic term like slave. Phryne wasn't a slave. She was a free woman and she was rich at that. But, you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, she's only a woman, so who cares? Well, you know what? I care. I care a lot. The fact is that um, high-class sex workers, sex worker women in ancient Greece, had carved out for themselves in a patriarchal society with no public vote, no anything else, one of the few ways of getting economic status freedom. They often had large um, groups of other women working for them. And we've got lots of evidence of, of, of them being able to create beautiful temples of the goddesses that helped them, like Aphrodite. They were very, very free. They were often highly educated because they actually came normally from um, Western Turkey, Eastern Greece. What's interesting to me about Phryne, one of the things is she's from Thespiae, which is this rather dull county, sort of, I don't know, it's the equivalent of saying she's from Huddersfield, really. Um, <laughs> With apologies yeah. to the people of Huddersfield. <laughs> I mean, she's, of she, she's not from France, you know, she's not from Italy, she's from a sort of northern county, and yet she was of such astonishing beauty and wit that regardless of what did or did not happen to her in court with all her manifold boyfriends, she made us remember her. I think we need to reclaim Phryne for a bunch of reasons, not least that she was beautiful, not least that she was funny, not least that she was clever and rich and all of those things, but because she was an extremely canny art dealer. <laughs> and here is the story to prove it. So she is having a, let's go with tete-a-tete -tete with... <laughs> The whole week, I absolutely swear to you, I'm like, well, how am I going to tell that story? <laughs> okay, he's doing what to her? Right, hang on a minute. <laughs> Let's go with tete-a-tete -tete with Praxiteles. And he says, I have enjoyed myself so much, Phryne, that you may have any one of my statues you like as a gift. And she says, that is terrific news. Which is your favourite? And he says, I love them all, which is the same as saying absolutely nothing. But Phryne is too smart to have a fight with him, and so she does not. She says, all right, darling, that sounds perfect. And an hour or so later, one of her slaves rushes in and says, Praxiteles, I'm so sorry, your workshop's on fire. I don't know what to say. And he goes, oh, no, are my things being destroyed? She goes, yes, yeah, your sculptures are all being destroyed. He goes, oh, no, not my satyr, not my beautiful satyr that I sculpted and my beautiful um, statue of arrows that I love so much. And finally he goes, oh, they're the best two, are they? I'll have the arrows. <laughs> it was a ruse, ladies and gentlemen. 
And that is why we are celebrating her tonight, because not only was she a high-end courtesan, but she was also, and I think we can all agree, not just a pretty face. <laughs> Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics, was written and performed by me, Natalie Haynes. My guests were Professor Edith Hall and Katie Brand, and our producer was the marvellous Mary Ward-Lowry.